You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to Prehistories. I'm Kim Bidolf. If you've listened to the podcast before and you've come back for more, welcome and thank you very much. Do leave a message in the comments box below and tell me a book that you'd like me to talk about. Um, If you haven't listened to the podcast before, um, basically I talk to guests who are often archaeologists but not always, like tonight, about the archaeology behind books set in the prehistoric human past. We can talk about where the evidence comes from, the interpretations of that evidence, and what's left out as much as what's put in. But we can also talk about the power of fiction to go further than mere archaeology can. Today we are looking at two picture books for kids, Stone Age Boy by Satoshi Kitamura and The First Drawing by Mordecai Gerstein. Gerstein. Um, Yes, they're for kids, but stick around as it gives us a chance to talk about life in the Upper Paleolithic and... More importantly, cave art. So talking to me today about these two picture books are Ghislaine Howard, an artist who collaborated with the British Museum on their Ice Age art exhibition several years ago. Hello, Ghislaine, how are you? Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you very much. Lovely to be, uh, lovely to be in conversation this evening. Yeah, it's lovely to finally talk to you. We've been talking about this for a few months, haven't we? And we've finally managed to get a date. <laughs> yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know yeah, you were so, you were in Australia last year, weren't you, for a while? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a yeah, a lot of travelling yeah. and. Um, and uh, exhibitions and uh, so forth, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, we're also joined by Andrew Needham of the University of York, um, whose research interests include the emergence of creativity in the Paleolithic and Paleolithic art um, in general. Hello, Andy. Hi, Kim. Very Hello. Good. Yeah, thank you. It's been... Uh, um, it's lovely to to make contact with you again, um, and I've seen you talk at a couple of tag uh, theoretical archaeology group conferences, um, and found your research really interesting. You've been particularly working on Montas Truc, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, uh, French uh, rock yeah. the site uh, of Manchurian dates about fifteen thousand years old, uh, with a really great um, portable art, art assemblage. So yeah. my specialism is, is the portable art assemblage. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, what is portable art? I mean, I know on the Archaeology Podcast Network, quite a lot of people who listen will know all of this stuff, um, but some people might not. So what, when we use terms like portable art, what, what do you mean? Yeah. So um, broadly, there's a distinction between what we might call parietal art, which would be art which is sort of fixed in place, so anything sort mm-hmm. of paid on the or a rock shelter, versus anything which is uh, technically mobile, that's on a small stone. Yeah. If it's sort of uh, sort of beads or pendants, mm. uh, if it's made on pieces of bone, for example, if it can be moved quite freely, you would call that uh, portable art. And the terms themselves aren't necessarily strictly meaningful, um, but mm. they are a way for us to sort of lump art together and give it some sense of um, sort of different between different types. Yeah, because portable art can include things that are clearly ornamentation and other things that are might have some kind of. Uh, ritual significance and other, and sometimes the art is on really t- um, utilitarian objects, isn't it? So it's um... yeah. Um, so actually, I think this is one of the hardest questions for art is um, how yes. exactly we define it, how exactly we sort of we, we create meaningful categories and lumps. Yeah, we quite we just that point where where everyone would agree actually. Um, yeah, that is going to be a difficult question. Uh, we will get to a bit more in depth about that. <laughs> um, but I want to. So 
I wanted to hear a bit about your work and so on. And Ghislaine, um, your work came to be featured mm. in the Ice Age art exhibition, which I absolutely, I took my, my daughter to it. She was two at the time. And mm. we were the, I think she was the only child in there that went to see it, but she loved it. Um, oh, but obviously yeah. quite quite a lot of the of the first bit of the Ice Age art exhibition was um, the so-called Venus figurines, which are um, mm. na- naked women, um, uh, and and possibly most of them are pregnant or post pregnancy. So also signs of having given given birth. Yeah. 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 Um, well, that was where my my drawing was situated. Yeah. Yeah. An extraordinary thrill and release on for me as as an artist drawing of myself pregnant. Right. It's charcoal on paper. Um, it, it you know it's it seems a long time to me. And when yeah. I saw it. In the exhibition next to the little figurines that has old, it was a fantastic solution and a sense of connectivity and the, just the yeah. difficulty of conceiving of, of that time scale, but yeah. also realizing that the reason that I made the drawing in the first place and uh, to record something that was happening to me that was very important to me that was a you know universal experience but was to me to hold something of that to, um, to image it. Yeah. I realised that these little, little people—it was quite, you know, very, very moving. Um, yeah. Experience. I'm sorry, I, your your audio keeps on um, cutting out a little bit, which is really annoying because I um, we are getting the gist of what you're saying, but every now and again it just goes silent a little bit. Oh, sure. So is very that sorry. Is that am I too far away? No, I think it's. I think it might be something about the connection, but we'll keep on going because I, I really want to talk to you about this. <laughs> so the the tagline of that exhibition um, was the the arrival of the modern mind, uh, which is interesting, isn't it? In a sense, um, that's uh, what our books are saying to the books that we're going to talk about. That's what they're saying. Particularly one of them, the first drawing by Mordecai Gerstein, um, is. Um, is basically saying that a child um, about 30,000 years ago invented art. Um, mm. But to what what extent is that? I mean, this obviously opens up this big question that we that you already posed, Andy, about what do you call art? What is art? Um, and, you know, is it fair to say that Homo sapiens invented it in Europe <laughs> 30,000 years ago? Or, or 40 or 43 or 45 or whatever. What do you think, Andy? <laughs> it follows a very... Um, and that would be the, the, the classic interpretation, I think it would be fair to say. Mm. And so in that sense, um, Gerstein's book is sort of there or thereabouts. But I actually think in recent decades, the, the shape of art has, has changed substantially. Um, so it's... Sort of, it's, it's changed on on two fronts i think the the claim that uh it's about 30 to forty thousand years old is probably too young now mm. and the claim that it's sort of uh, specifically uh, western european yeah and the single species phenomenon are probably again probably underestimates uh as well so there's recent evidence that would suggest that the moment humans sort of spring from africa about a hundred thousand years ago depending on which dates you believe mm. art came with them um so, so for me, I think the moment you get humans, um, and by humans I would mean sort of anatomically human, but also perhaps sort of behaviourally and cognitively human, mm. um, which I would date to about 100,000 myself, you do see evidence for art. So, so sites such as um, Deep Blue Cave in South Africa, yeah. um, and Blombos Cave, perhaps especially, perhaps the most famous, yeah. um, have really complex evidence for sort of engraved pieces of ochre, engraved in the blockage, eggshell. Yeah. Um, I think this is just as complex as these, these famous cave paintings in, in Europe. Um, you see now uh, evidence for parietal art, so that's, that's sort of um, art on the cave wall, if you like, and, and painted uh, in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. About 40,000 years. So that's only found in the last two years. Uh, and from Australia, from anywhere from sort of 40 to 60,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, Evidence sort of as part of um, pendants, shark teeth, possibly the use of bone for um, uh, inserts into the, the nose with orca. It's sort of like powdered red fine dust that they use. Um, so it seems wherever you find humans, you find this, this evidence for 
um, complexity of behavior, yeah. which is some sort of artistic expression, how you might want to sort of define that, that particular type of art. Um, well, and it looks like yeah. the more practical aspects um, run ahead of the, the parietal. Um, so that seems to be sort of the gist of it, at least for, for humans as yeah. As far as I'm aware. Yeah, exactly. I mean, th- that raises so many um, issues about, you know, the symbolic behaviour, um, body adornment and things like that. And I was mm-hmm. talking to Matthew Pope and Becky Scott about the inheritors in the last podcast um, and about the um, the representation of Neanderthals. And of course, there's recent evidence that they were engaged in symbolic behaviour as well with taking um, feathers from raptors and corvids and so on yeah. to for decoration. I mean, the major, the major strand, I think, which has happened with Neanderthals, which I found really fascinating, is I would say in the last five years, we've had a bit of a revolution in how we think about Neanderthals, linked ultimately to um, mm. changes in how we understand DNA. Um, so once we thought they were a completely different species, and now it looks like we have some evidence of, of human um, and uh, Neanderthal interaction, genetically mm. speaking, sort of interbreeding there. Yeah. And that's really changed um, what we allow them to have in terms of uh, cognitive capacity, social capacity, and similar. And so I think a lot of um, art that was maybe around before has now been taken seriously. And we're starting to find more and more of them with independent creation. So certainly from the 1980s onwards, it was, it was popular that um, Neanderthals might have made some artistic objects but actually probably that like they learned it from humans in europe hmm. whereas now i think with new dating evidence and then with the sort of new genetic evidence we start to see increasing uh, claims that they can make it independently and the last sort of golden barrier if you like between the capacities of neanderthals and of humans was um parietal art which we always think of the most complex hmm. uh, and again um 2014 um a team at gorham's cave in gibraltar have made the case that they found independent creation prior to last by yeah. Neanderthal. Yeah. So again, all this collapse, this division about what we think makes us special as a species, well actually our closest ancestors, Neanderthal, seem to have been able to to, to match us in that capacity. Yeah. Um so yeah, the, the pictures really changed rapidly in the last five years especially. What do you think, Elaine, about um, the the origin of art? I mean, presumably cave walls and or little objects, we call that art because it's similar to the art that we have today, but sh- do you, would you call um, person uh, changing one's body art? Because wouldn't that be like the f- almost like the first um, uh, medium in which to to express yourself? What do you think? Well, I, uh, we are essentially visual creatures. You know, we observe, we discern, we remember, we collaborate, and we want to leave traces. And I suppose. You know, as as long as, as things are left on cave walls or human beings leaving places behind of themselves, things that are not necessarily useful for living or hunting. Yeah. But actually, so I was here. Um, yeah. Leaving something of yourself or leaving your mark, um, which is still what we want to do today. Yeah, and it would. It, I mean, it, this is the 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 idea, isn't it? What is art? Is it, it, it is tattooing yourself? Or painting yourself, or making a hole in yourself—is that? Can we can we lump uh, lump that all in together? Because art is usually—I mean, there is art in it, but essentially, art, um, the art, the art of it, um, is is art that reaches out to other people, mm. sort of the imagination, the encounter. But then it's about communication as well, I think, and about um, you know reaching out beyond yourself. Um, you know, yeah. like a poem. Yes, absolutely. If somebody else reads it. Yeah. Um, with the the first drawing, um, it is in the back. Um, the the author does say explicitly that it he was inspired by the finding of Chauvet Cave, which is also known as the Caverne du Pont d'Arc, um, in the Ardèche mm. in 1994, and um, and yet. Uh, the the paintings in it, I don't know if you noticed, and you probably did. I'm sure you did. Uh, are not really similar to the ones in the sh- in Chauvet, are they? There is a a conflation of cave art, of parietal art in that. Yes, I think there is, and um, I mean, is is that a problem, of... or is it not really? Does it matter? <laughs> I'm trying to think about the 
target audience this book as well. So so my, my, my start point with, with the reading of these books was that I was really genuinely excited yeah. to see some books about um, aspects of the Paleolithic yeah. that, you know, when I was a kid when I was growing up, they just, they just didn't exist, you know, really. No. Um, you know, so they, they, I was really excited about that in the first instance, regardless of their sort of specific content. So I really want to sort of um, give them both massive credit. Yes. For, for, for just sort of existing, actually. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, so I'm trying to sort of like to see it in those terms, that it's maybe for a, a, a young audience. So maybe we can forgive some aspects of um, factual accuracy only in... Um, in the interest of being able to get some sort of enthusiasm and engagement in in a young audience. So I think for me, there's a there's two prongs to this. There's there's the specialist in me obviously wants to sort of attack this and critique it and, and <laughs> make it I'm trying to see the big too, which is that the big victory here is getting young people engaged and infused and interested in the Paleolithic. So if it achieves that I would be quite happy to let any sort of factual errors slide to a degree. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I I sound really critical of them, but I love them. I think again, like you, I think they're absolutely amazing. Um, I mean, as you said, I think with that said, in an ideal world, as this is area starts to emerge, hopefully we can start to find a middle ground between factual accuracy and then that um, that capacity to engage that maybe an academic audience couldn't necessarily do strictly. Yeah. Um, well, because so the, the the panel of the lions in the in Chauvet would be absolutely amazing for kids to see and get engaged with. I yeah. think. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was really excited by the um, by the first drawing book because it is yeah. it is so imaginative. Yeah. And it is so engaging, and it um, it does give that sense. It's appealing to children who are at that very stage really of imagining things and making sense of the world through imaging it yeah and you know abstract data the curtains or whatever it's that in kind excitement little excitement of making yeah. it stick you know it's um yeah it is it's wonderful and i think um that is something small if I can just um read an extract from the first drawing um so and so it the um, there's there's was this one child, um, and we'll talk about how the the how it's set up um, a little bit later. Um, but the, this one child always sees animals in everything, in the clouds, in stones that he or she finds on the um, at the side of the river, um, and. I'm going to read a little bit from it. At night, wrapped in deerskins, you see shadow images of all the animals again in the firelight flickering over the bumps and hollows of the cave walls, and they seem to move. Look, Mama, galloping horses. What horses? Go to sleep. Papa, Grandpa, they're on the ceiling. Elk. There are no elk. Go to sleep. <laughs> and it, and so on and so on until the little child can make them see what they what he or she can see but what i love in the drawings as well is that there are a few who can see and you can tell from the looks on their faces they are seeing and they're all the youngest children which is fascinating do you think children had a, a ma- had, could children have invented art or indeed you know invented all sorts of things how how far can children it's very difficult to find them in the record but what you know surely they could be drivers of 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 innovation as well well i mean certainly every child every child draws yeah you know any three-year-old and absolutely and sadly um and it's the way we make sense of the world how we order it how sadly that was that um cut out quite a lot during that oh. bit it's really annoying so three i mean yes three and four year olds they do draw do they is that yeah, is that that's a universal thing and um it absolutely is i mean and then against the world they're abstracting they're doing the most complicated complicated sort of um, and then, really, by the age of, of six or seven, you know, now we have a way of drawing that separates. Yeah. So that they <coughs> that they're not very good at drawing, or whatever. You know, art has become separated from life. And I think what's lovely about, particularly for me, about the art is connecting with life as actually, you know, coming to terms with it and really just engaging. With it, which, um, if it sends children, you know, sends people back. Mm. I found a little bit sad, really, was that um, 
that the drawings, there weren't any of um, any actual Paleolithic art in the book, or it's there's one little time, um, and the drawings in the book, although they're lovely, they don't have that immediacy and, and um, elegance and power of you know some of the cave art that they're about. Yes, I suppose that's true. Um, the, I mean, it's 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 very difficult, isn't it, to find children in the archaeological record, isn't it, Andy? Especially in the Paleolithic, presumably. I mean, so in terms of say um, the skeletal record, mm. I mean, you can imagine um, you know the smaller and more delicate the bones, the more likely they are to be the um, lost in the archaeological record. So in terms of raw preservation, mm. young individuals and juveniles, they're very unlikely to preserve full stop. But in terms of their actions, again, what I really like about this mm. book was it put the children sort of front and center, right? You're wrongly, but it had them there as a presence. And I think we've probably been guilty uh, in previous decades of maybe not thinking overly much about children in art, mm. whereas actually some really good in recent decades that would suggest that they played quite a prominent role in art creation, at least in some topics. So some hand stencils, for example, mm. where water or black paint is sort of painted around the hand or use the hand sort of stamp onto the wall, mm. small enough to suggest they were made by children sometimes quite young so so sort of under the age of say 10. yeah um, you see footprints sometimes in caves including in Chauvet. yeah um and also and what we call finger fluting so if you imagine you've got some soft mud or some soft clay if you run your fingers through that so that leaves sort of a, a characteristic sort of rake mark yeah you've got those finger flutings and they're quite common in the post they can find them in quite a lot of palisic cave art sites a lot of those were made by children and so if you measure the um, the finger width yeah. um, and the sizes of those, um, that can give you a rough sense of, um, again, the age profile of the person concerned. So it does seem like um, across a whole range of sites, you, you get some evidence for um, the young being in association with art and then sort of the creation of some types of art. Um, mm. And also within the portable art assemblage, more sites you see, there's actually a range of skill evidence uh it's not master work that we attribute to that mm. prior like Chauvet and the cave um, and this would perhaps tally with evidence we get from the um stone tool assembly where well, we get a real range of skill um and people like me in the 90s suggested that you had some sort of degree of apprenticeship and learning happens in experience and experienced people probably suggestive of young and old mm. and probably that to a degree in the art record too. So again, a paper released just this year has made this exact case that um, much as people might have been sort of uh, incorporated into the production of yeah. tools, might not have been incorporated into the creation of art. Um, so yeah, I think increasingly we have to get this, this depth of signature yeah. of, of children involved in art. Despite the fact, rightly, as you said, they're, they're probably the most difficult people to find in the archaeological record. That's great. There's, there's a lot more than than I thought there there was. Then, so that's fantastic. Um, we're just yeah. going to take a little break now, um, so that uh, you can hear some messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Would you like to get more involved with archaeology? Are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities? Are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints? Check out the Ideas Portal, sponsored by Codify. Visit ideas.codify.com, a free and open community tool, and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from fieldwork to public service. All ideas are welcome, so visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codifi.com. Hello, welcome back from the break. Um, so th we are looking at two books today. So we have talked quite a lot about the first drawing and art, but in um, Stone Age Boy by Satoshi Kitamura, um, it's where while there is art, it seems to be mostly secondary, really, and um, you learn a lot more about the the lifestyle of people in the in the Paleolithic. So what I quite liked about it was that um, although um, the Stone Age Boy, who is actually a modern boy who goes back to the Stone Age, um, falls into the a cave he leaves the cave and that's where he finds people he finds them in the open air could they could cavemen have lived 
not in caves, Andy? <laughs> Very basic question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so I noticed in this one, and I really, really loved this one, actually, I really loved it, um, that you sort of shifted time focus slightly from, from sort of Chauvet primarily about 30,000, 36,000 with yeah. the first drawing to uh, the Magdalenians. So we've got to be past... Um, the last glacial maximum, so I'll call it 20,000 years ago, where it's super, super cold and humans have retreated. I mean, they'll move back out into humans have recolonized into open, step like environments. Um, <laughs> yeah. With this rich fauna that you might see in the Magdalenian world. And it's great, it's really factual, but it's still quite visual. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, I've, I've noticed as well that it's um, that. There's a note saying thanks to Alice Roberts from the Ashmolean Museum for sort of help and guidance on the, the archaeology yeah. of the book. And I think you can really tell it's very sharp on detail, but has that um, that flair of a, a, a real writer. Yeah. So I think that real nice between um, archaeological facts meets um, a little bit of, um, of imagination. Um, so I thought, yeah, it was a very strong, very strong as well. Yeah, I know, I loved it. I mean, there's a particular kind of two-page spread where... Um... All, so I mean, it looks like all the research has really gone onto those two pages, doesn't it? Where, um, where the boy who finds himself with this group of people in the Magdalenian... Um, and he kind of... He, he lists everything that he's seen... Um, and there are little pictures to illustrate all of those. So making fire, making tools, making ornaments, making Ooh. clothes and making food. Um, and there's there's just so much detail in there. You could, I, I mean, I read this to my daughter again today, actually. Yeah. Um, she wanted, she saw it was out and she said, oh, can you read that to me? <laughs> and we spent ages looking at all the different things. And obviously, because she's my daughter, she's, she, you know, she knows quite a lot about... <laughs> how this all works but um um it it's a fantastic um particularly just to just to look at that that double page spread to talk kids through what life would be like yeah i thought it was tremendously yeah really tremendously what were you saying andy i thought it felt i thought it felt quite natural so it sort of it's embedded in the story Mm. well uh sort of uh a chunk of fact, if you like. I think it's it's actually quite engaging still within the, the broad narrative. Mm. Uh, but yeah, just I think there's like there's some takeaway value there. I thought um, as much as the first volume, the, the first drawing is about that imagination and ideas and trying to get children to think about being in the past and what it might have been like. This gave you very much sort of a a, a day in the life of what it would be like to be a hunter gatherer fifteen mm. thousand years ago. Um, and I thought, yeah, it felt um, quite dynamic in that respect, and, uh, quite clever. Yeah, uh, but it does also have. I mean, it, 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 they do go into a, cave, a painted cave later, don't they? But um, it also has a a page after the hunt where they're dancing and making music. So it's lovely that they it kind of doesn't just show a group of people just surviving on the edge of, you know, uh, of the tundra. It is um, a very rich culture that they've got. Yeah, I mean, I tried to scrutinise the pictures, of course, with a, you know, a, sort of a, an archaeological eye. But they've been quite clever, I think, in, in incorporating aspects which are embedded in the archaeological records. So the young girl, Om, who's the, yeah. the sort of the, the, the other character with the young boy, um, she plays a flute. And we have evidence of flutes in the archaeological record from about 40,000 years ago, right the way through the Paiute. Yeah. Um, the choice of instrument is quite clever and, and embedded in the in the story some some uh, yeah factual accuracy absolutely um, mm. so again I think demonstrates a good level of research I think. yes mm. um, I mean they would be made out of bone wouldn't they and so you get um, as you yeah. say uh, yeah. often bird bone isn't it that's used for for flutes like yeah. vultures yeah, and stuff quite, exactly yeah like really quite large yeah birds. and then you can see major wing bones um, and use those and usually sort of cut them in half uh, perforate the holes and then you ask them to glue them back together right. um, usually gives you your uh, your flute um, yeah but as you say it's almost almost certainly mostly bird bones that they use um, 
if they hollow it out, they need ivory, but as I say, they have to cut it in half to hollow out the center. With bird bones, it's naturally hollow, yeah. and it's their job. So usually it's bird bone, not the target. Yeah. Um, there is, a, there on the, the double-page spread, there is a little bit about... Um, uh, the portable art. This is where there's a tiny, tiny bit. There's a the head from Brassempuy. I think that's sorry for anyone listening in France if I haven't said that right. Um, which is actually disputed, isn't it? That head. Um, the it's kind of it's one of the few with an actual face. Yes, the, it's a real one up. This one. Um, yeah. Potentially, it's a, little, it's a little earlier than this sort of this this, this Magdalenian brain right, that's been built on this thing. But it was found by Edouard Piet at uh, the turn of the century, so in the very early 20th century, um, during his excavations at Brassempois. Um, he found a whole collection of them from that site. Um, many of them were fragmented, however, uh, at the site, um, workmen were paid by the find. So you can question quite whether they were finding an object and maybe sort of helping it along and smashing it up a bit and sort of, oh. um, um, you know, in pieces. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the level of notes and recording there um, weren't very good to contemporary standards. Uh, so worked by Randall White, is maybe the go-to source for this from 2006. Um, and he's, he's currently suggested that it could be real uh, based on microscopic analysis of working marks and traces. Right. He suggests that the tool marks probably are made by stone tools, probably burins. Right. Um, like a um, a very, they're almost, they look a bit like a pencil, but they have a very firm, hard, solid point, which would let you sort of, um, you know, make quite deep marks. Um, and, and for that, he suggests maybe they are real. Either that, if it is a forgery, it's a very, very clever forgery for the time, where potentially right. stone tools would be used. So still, as you say, very questionable, but um, I think, at the moment, people may be tipping more towards it might be real, but a genuine oddity in that it's so detailed in the face, yeah. whereas the face is the thing that's usually quite obscure relative to everything else. Yeah. Uh, usually, usually no facial features, maybe some hair might be depicted, um, but usually you, you may say that relatively lacking detail compared to the rest of the anatomy. And in fact, some of them um, don't even have heads, do they? Or they've got just little button kind of things instead of heads. Yeah, and as you move in sort of central and eastern mm. Europe, it's common, and they're, they're typically sort of made out of either, either uh, lurse, which is like a soft stone, or ivory, usually mammoth ivory. Mm. And um, it's quite typical that they'll, they'll intentionally break the head off in that region, and maybe break the foot oh, really? too. So, yeah, really peculiar pattern in, in how they're used in, throughout their life. And yeah. um, these items were, were a visual type of material culture. Yeah. They've been used in very particular ways. But there's a Central European site called Donny Vestinici, yeah. um, where it looks like the figurines were, were made intentionally to fragment in a, in a kiln structure. So um, they're made from lace, they're wetted, and they're hooked together. It's much like you might sort of make a little clay figurine um, yourself. Mm. Um, thrown into, into a fire, um, but they were intentionally wetted before they were thrown into the fire with the idea that. Um, they would fragment once that those sort of water molecules were excited in the, in the heat of the fire. Mm. So, um, yeah, they were sort of intentionally fragmented, which is a very curious thing to do with art, really. Um, mm. And, and complex. Yeah, well, absolutely. But. I mean, uh, you also mentioned that um, in um, the first drawing, there isn't really a great deal of life. It's all very focused on art. The only thing that you see people doing in the first drawing is going collecting stones to make stone tools. Um, but the child in there does have a wolf as a pet. Um, but uh, And, and it, the, the author does mention at the back that um, the evidence of a wolf print at Chauvet. But um, even 30,000, 36,000, however old Chauvet is, because it is disputed, isn't it? Um, or did or did they have dogs at that point already? It's a real fascinating area of debate, which is um, certainly in the last sort of ten or fifteen years has um, has been revived actually in the archaeological uh, community. Yeah. And I think probably most people would now probably agree that the domestication of the dog is probably the first domesticated species, yeah. probably as early as about. Um, the mid 30s, 36,000 wow. perhaps. The major body of evidence for this comes from sites like, uh, Goyer Cave in Belgium, yeah. 
uh, which has been um, studied primarily by uh, Jim Montpellier, uh, a Belgian researcher. Um, and based on sort of the anatomy of um, what we originally thought were wolves that were being recovered from sites, um, probably um, they're now thought to be dogs. And genetically speaking, it looks like we have increasingly strong evidence for um, yeah. dogs and sort of multiple phases of domestication too. So I would argue probably it would be more appropriate in the first drawing to depict a, a wolf-like dog rather than strictly a, a wolf. I imagine wolves are probably quite scary in the pilot yeah. as they are. Today. Yeah. Um, um, you, you just you just sort of thinking about the um, in the first drawing there not being much about actual life and and admittedly there isn't because they, they, the the uh, Stone Age boy is so full of factual um, wonderful factual drawings and, yeah. and details about everyday life but there isn't what there is I think in the um, the first drawing is a sense of danger a sense of uh, yeah sort of hurling then that encounter. With the woolly oh, mammoth, I love that bit. Yeah, actually, the smell yeah. of it—it's yeah. fantastic, isn't it? And that for me, very well together. Yes, um, because the the Stone Age boy is is all rather at a distance. Yeah, same all the way through, and there's a kind of a safety about it. You know, they go hunting, but it's it's obviously it's yeah. There is much more of a sense of the, the grittiness and the danger. And Absolutely. Kind of life. I do think they complement each other very well. And I, I like your, how you... I hadn't really clocked mm. that the scale of the people changes and the way you're situated viewing these people or viewing the animals changes in the first drawing and it's much more dynamic. Mm. And yet in, mm. in um, Stone Age Boy, I, you're right, you're always at a distance from the the people yeah, and you're yeah. they're always in the middle distance aren't they and they're all the same size more or less so that's an interesting really interesting thing although there is a little bit of danger at the yeah. end isn't there with the cave bear coming in but then he is it's not it's not as dangerous yeah. as it could be although i do yeah <laughs> going into the cave it seems a little bit a little bit yeah you know just um the cave doesn't seem that dark. No, it's not. And because there's scaffolding around, yeah, it doesn't really, it doesn't seem to be yeah. quite so. But then I guess, I guess that this is the quite young, you know, but it's perhaps more of a classroom book, you know, or with young yeah. children, with a, a carer with them explaining things, you know, and the other one is more of a imaginative storybook really yes but as I, as you say i think they work together well and i think you could get some good philosophical um discussions out of the first drawing about about like yeah. we've been having about what is art and you know when did when was it invented um and um, mm. and who could be involved mm. in that invention so yes i mean one thing about in the in the painted cave in um, Stone Age Boy is that Om, who is actually the only named character in the entire book as well, uh, who is the the friend who is a girl from the Palio from the Magdalenian um, to the Stone Age Boy who had gone back in time, draws a picture of him on the wall, and that's one of the things that there is this kind of distinction between what's drawn on walls which um, is generally animals. If you do get any kind mm. of human figures, they're slightly fantastical. Um, a, apart from mm, mm. at Lascaux in the in the pit where there's there's a bird-headed man, um, but mm. but with the portable art, you've got so many people, uh, admittedly without faces, like you were saying, yeah. but you, they're real people depicted. That fascinates me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a amazing point, isn't it? It is, and it, I wonder why there was that. There's definitely yeah. different there's different reasons why people are making cave art as opposed to the portable art there obviously for different things although of course there are lots of animals in portable art as well so <laughs> yeah i mean we, we don't know do we i mean we can uh, you know there's lots of different speculations mm. um about why they were made the problem is i have got when when i talk to uh, yeah, sorry, Elaine. Well, uh, when I talk to teachers or I hear teachers talking to their children and they're talking, or oh, the kids tell me why people made cave art, um, they come up with ideas like they didn't speak to each other, so this was the way of communicating, which 
I know. It's like, oh, God. No, that's not why they did it. Um, or that these were the animals. <laughs> I, just, I just have to tell them, you know, no, that's not why they did it. Um, or these were the animals they were hunting and they were showing each other how to hunt these animals. But um, uh, Or they were telling stories with them. And these are the three main um uh, kind of explanations that the kids come up with and, and I think mm. possibly the storytelling might be more on the right lines mm, mm, mm. I mean uh, the fact that I mean that the animals were so important to their lives I suppose yeah. weren't they I mean that's one of the obvious things but and the fact that they're made that the, the cave paintings on them look, seem so alive and seem so extraordinary yeah. to us us isn't just because they're drawn so beautifully it's that they absolutely breathe with feeling don't they and um in a sense it's what what struck me about the little pregnant figures is that they have a sense of embodiment yeah. and or inhabiting of those those um and i don't even remember where it was but there was um we walked down a sort of track to um it was supposed to be some carvings rock oh, yeah. carvings and we came to an over in the cliff and um there were three horses down there wow. and it, the, the smell of damp vegetation you know warm vegetation and it, it took a second or two to realize the course our horses out of the rock <laughs> gosh so when I yeah, read the story and the breathing quality of, of the rock with the um with the yes all the drawings um yeah i mean they're so accomplished with what they were doing and taking advantage mm, of the natural mm, formation mm. of rock that they were using now uh, we're we're gonna have to take a break again and then we'll be back in a couple of minutes to um talk a bit more because it's getting very exciting now i'm jessica uquinto and i'm the host of the heritage voices podcast heritage voices focuses on how crm and heritage professionals public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, and indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. Hi, we're back. And um, we're still talking about the first drawing and Stone Age Boy. So I really haven't given much of a pricey of the books, really, have I? Uh, Which is a bit remiss of me. they both have a kind of a parallel way of getting into the Stone Age, but slightly different. So in the first drawing, um, the you start with a modern child um, and the author asks you to imagine you are going back more than 30,000 years. Um, and all the way through, he continues to use the second person. So it's always, you uh, love to watch animals. You live in a cave with your parents. Um, you see animals on the wall. Um, and so you never find out whether the child is a boy or a girl. And I think that was the intention is to make it quite open so that any child reading it could could think of themselves in that uh, as that person. Do you think that he succeeds with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think it's maybe what um, maybe to bring back a, the point that Guillaume would make as well. But um, in reading this, I felt like like more of a fly on the wall, and more like I was actually there. Um, yeah. Whereas in the Stone Age Boy, I felt like more like it was after the fact I was having a conversation with the boy with yeah. glasses. Uh, that it already happened. Whereas, yeah, so I think maybe maybe um, the first one was more of an invitation yeah. um, to uh, give you more of an intimate sense of maybe sort of interpersonal relationships and that sort of, sort of family dynamic. Um, so I think maybe, yeah, maybe it was successful in that respect. Um, as you say, it didn't necessarily pull out the, the gender um, of the, the person in question. And I, and immediately made an assumption yeah. um, about, about, you know, as it was. It probably reflects out of me. So in, in no, but day, I don't think it does because um, my six-year-old daughter thinks it's a boy as well. And I think I think it's just that there's a, sadly, there's an, a, a, an assumption that the main character in a story is going to be a boy. 
and and I think that is carried that that's actually there is evidence for that in in lots of picture books. I do want to do a little bit of work on that myself, but um, I I have a, a a feeling that sadly girls are generally play second fiddle in storybooks. <laughs> I don't know if you've got an opinion on that, Ghislaine. <laughs> well, uh, it's up to, up, yeah, I think it's uh, it's certainly true, and um, um, I'm not sure. I'm trying to. I didn't really think about it that hard, except I thought it was a boy, probably. <laughs> but looking at Cinnamon's yeah. boy, because she's got a sort of girlish top on and long hair, whereas the you know, um, yeah, it seems she is actually a girl, and I think the girl now, and of course, in the first poem, the figure is androgynous yeah. but slightly stocky. So I think maybe that's why you know you... we still think it's a boy. Yeah, I think. Um, mm, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, I think Om is is definitely depicted in quite a modern way for a girl, to be honest. So, um, but but I guess I guess um, Satoshi Kitamura probably had to do that to make it clear that. So he he had even though the main protagonist is a boy, Om is very active, so that's good. Um, so the 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 way that the Stone Age boy works is that the boy actually uh, goes to he he goes into the woods and he um, falls down into a cave and when he falls down into this cave he's gone back in time um, to the Paleolithic and I quite liked the way that he did that because wasn't Lasco found the Lasco cave found by by boys falling down a yeah. cave yeah. <laughs> am I Exactly that. Yeah, so that's a very nice parallel, I thought. Yeah. And Andy, what I really liked at the end was that he goes, he he turns into an archaeologist. <laughs> I loved that page. Loved that. It was brilliant. Yeah, that was brilliant. That was a really yeah. good touch, actually. Um, again, especially because obviously you added in pages there with some um, sort of factual overtones, which are giving you, you know, a little bit of a, a bump about the period, and then. It ends on that strong note of, um, uh, and you can sort of make a career of this. So I thought that was quite a nice invitation for, for young minds, you know, if they were of a uh, sufficient level of interest that, you know, this is what you can do. Um, so yeah. career, you know, think about this sort of um, So I thought that was a very welcome addition. Actually. Yeah, and I think. Um, Elaine. What I really liked at the end of the book of the uh, Stone Age boy was the timeline. Yeah, actually, I I just found that it's not, it's a really nice one. Um, oh, it's a lovely one. Broadway living with aeroplanes and so forth is so 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 recent, so very very visual, and even the and so forth. It really sets it in context. So. That was, that was lovely, I thought. Yeah, it's very useful to have. And as you say, although it does only go back to 15,000 BC, so I guess he's, that's, that's where he's, he's setting it, really. But that's but even then, it does really show, you know, that the most most of human history was actually the Paleolithic. <laughs> um, and, yeah, as you say, it's got lovely mm. little drawings all along and it will be a lovely timeline to mm. blow up and have... In a classroom, wouldn't it? It would be wonderful. Absolutely great. Well, resource, I think I agree. I agree completely. It was a really good addition at the end there. Yeah. Um, the um, So the, the the books then are... There are issues with the accuracy, maybe, a little bit. Um, but there's... They, they, they kind of do provide so much... Um, to, to talk about and that, and in many ways when teachers use um or when parents are reading these to their kids um they are they should really be a way to to kind of start off those conversations and um they really do that i mean for me as an archaeologist obviously i can have quite in-depth conversations with my daughter but um you would hope that with that extra information at the back that that parents or teachers would be able to do that too Mm. Well, and what I would hope, really, that is so nice, boy. There are some quite nice drawings of, you know, a cave bear and a mammoth. Yeah. And, uh, stone Age. But they're fairly just quite nice soft drawings. You know, they're not anything like as powerful as um, Stone Age boy might 
come across in the caves. So you'd hope that they're a really useful tool, you know, just to be the entry point. Yeah. Just. Yeah. Yeah. Because mammoths and so on, um, mammoths and uh, um, oh, saber-toothed cats are really the the things that all kids know. And so to have those, they, they you know, those are the hooks really to get them into thinking about lots of other things in this mm. in this period, aren't they? Um, and um, uh. And yet, the you know, I I mean, obviously, if that if if the Stone Age boy is based on Lascaux, there weren't any mammoths on the cave there, but there are in other caves, um, and so on. And um, there is just something quite amazing about a mammoth. And in the first drawing, uh, you put you mentioned this earlier, didn't you, Ghislaine, Where um, the the child meets that mammoth. I mean, I remember my daughter when she first saw it, being actually terrified of that that page. Because you really see the mammoth up close, um, and, and the text—the text is nice there as well, isn't it? It says it sniffs you with its trunk, then stands perfectly still. You're afraid to move, and it's like a fur-covered mountain with eyes that look into yours. So the text, I think, works really well as well on that yeah. um, on that page. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's very, very striking. Um, and I, as you say, it's a bit that is 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 almost like um it's the contrast between the real of the mammoth even though we know it's a drawing um and the mammoth on the cave wall which as you say doesn't quite have the same um the same aliveness and and essence of the uh of the cave paintings that we know are there um so but it is it is magic isn't it it's it, it, I, I, this is that's is another nice bit out of um the first drawing where when the child makes the first drawing which is a mammoth because obviously it has to be um the rest of his family are terrified and they can finally see what you see and say i can see it gasp your father this is magic and then the child looks at and you look at what you've done you have made the world's first drawing yes you say it is magic and it is I think that's a lovely yeah. line. It really is lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, one thing that um, I really like um, on the illustration drawing the stick, you know, because um, that's how Matisse um, tried to, to put in the Ice Age Art British Museum. But Matisse was an artist yeah. looking back to this simplicity and the grace and and trying to get that back without the kind of blocks that we have of all the knowledge and philosophy yeah. and so forth. So, you know, it's a wonderful thing, perhaps, using, you know, a long stick dipped in ink yeah. to try and recreate something of sense, you know, way of, of the boy is drawing in the same oh. Yeah, the, the boy or the girl. Yeah, that's really oh, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, yeah. It, that it was something else that came out of uh, the exhibition was that that clear um, inspiration that the the discovery of this amazing Paleolithic art was um, had on on the art world and um, with Matisse, like you say, but Picasso as well, um, uh, and and an inspiring basically modern art and do you feel like you kind of come out of that that tradition yourself do you do you go back to the paleolithic art ever or do you um if you moved on to well well in a sense yeah i mean when i was when i was very young i saw um of some cave art and i remember drawing we used to draw with pastels and there were stuffed animals in the museum where the classes were. And I remember really trying to get something of that speed and life into my drawings. And I believe that, um, that art, art is about, I've wanted to make art about shared human experience, about the fact that all human, we all feel things in, in similar ways, sorrow, broadly similar and you know we, we we live a life on this planet and um in a sense being in that exhibition the ice age art show next to those little um sculptures 
for me, the making of my drawings is very much about embodiment and about that reaches out to all sorts of people and uh, making a very accessible art. And I thought completely a sense of connection with these people who were yeah. human like us, um, that sense of connection. And a lot of things, but that is one of the things it does, makes us feel part of, you know, it makes us feel those connections. And, um, and the art is continually evolving. Um, it changes, but essentially, the people making that art were not, it was, it's no. not primitive art. No. I mean, it is, it's as sophisticated really as anything. And that's why artists like Picasso and Matisse and, uh, and Braque, you know, Mm-hmm. And it's never, never yeah. been better. Really. I mean, I think um, that that is the whole point of my career is to try and get people, particularly because I work with kids a lot and teachers, to see that people in prehistory were just like us. And I think these books, these books do do mm-hmm. that. Um, what I mean, obviously, the the art that that we see is for all sorts of reasons. Andy, I was saying earlier that I I often get these three, and we kind of didn't include you in that discussion, sorry, but we get these three, I get these three explanations of Paleolithic art from children, i.e. that it was their language, um, that it uh, recorded which animals that they hunted, or that it was used for storytelling. Are any of those actually, I mean, obviously not that that it was language because people could speak. (laughs) Um, They had a very uh, fully functioning language. I think we can probably say that Um, with a great deal of of confidence. But but what what is it? What do you think it's for? It's interesting that you that what you said about um, what children naturally gravitate towards in terms of explanation. In some cases, are genuine explanations for art. Um, so the one about um, these might be animals mm. were hunted um, was the predominant argument for Paleolithic art in the early parts of the 20th century. So certainly until about say the 1920s, that was the dominant interpretation of Paleolithic art, um, and that you know it might be some sort of uh, language. I mean, as you as you rightly say, it can be sure, absolutely sure that they could you know, have mm. a spoken language. But if we build that more as a um, information exchange so um that you can try and communicate information stylistically between so if you work at say if you paint a mammoth in one way or you paint a mammoth in another way you can try and tell a story or communicate information with that that was very popular in archaeological circles in the 1980s inspired by especially by work by um Paul Reisner from uh, the ethnographic record so looking at mm. community um so actually a lot of what young people would say um, uh, uh, tried and tested ideas. Um, the only one they don't come up with is that they were visions of shamans, which, of course, is, is another theory that's come out, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's come that maybe sort of the, the dominant position at the moment that um, this might well reflect on outer body experience or um, people being whisked away to another place through a trance like experience. Uh, and then you sort of paint and depict. Uh, what you might have experienced in that trance using the um, the native shape of the cave that you would have been working in low light conditions you might have been quite hungry or tired or quite cold working in a very sort of dark uh, and evocative environment um to enhance the sort of the, the, the emotional valency of the the world mm. um that's become very popular yeah, certainly in the last um quite sort of 30 years especially um and, and maybe maybe up until now that it has started to receive more um sort of critical attention I think, uh, and there's been a shift increasingly towards just just how our neurological system works, how mm. vision works, um, how brain works into what we might broadly call a more um, strictly cognitive archaeology, um, and seeing how that then sort of um, mirrors aspects of the artistic depiction. Um, in terms of maybe sort of what I think of what art might mean, so yeah, I think that's it's such a difficult question to answer, and I think this is part of, partly um, what people don't do enough in archaeology is that we we try and create sort of a monolithic interpretation mm. of what art uh, what art has always, rather than necessarily try to think about 
different times, different places, different people, different types of art, and think about the, the myriad meanings that might spring up from that, whether you're the person who made it, whether you're the person who wears it, whether you're the person who um, is looking at it from afar. You might have very different perspectives. I think if we walk into an art gallery today, um, we couldn't strictly say read the meaning of a, a painting that had been made only yesterday by a contemporary artist. I think we could probably add something to um, to that interpretation, to what that art means, by actually being there, either looking at it, yeah. either having yeah. an opinion about it. Um, as much as the artist might have a particular involvement in the making of it. Um, that's a very sort of long-winded way of me saying I'm not really... <laughs> a sense of what what the strict meaning of this is i think it's very much about yeah people and uh, it's about young people it's about experienced people it's about the the interrelationship of communities and how people learn stuff um and evidently it's about the world as well so it's drawing on a deep appreciation of animals um uh, biologically anatomically, and behaviorally as well as looking mm. at uh, and uh, ultimately i think it's comes to the very depths of humanity, what makes it what we are. Yeah. So as much as we certainly have some artistic capacity, um, it's not like what, what humans do, seemingly have always done. So for me, to ask the question of um, what is the meaning of art is to ask the question of what is the meaning of, of humanity, what's the meaning yeah. mean to be human. Um, I think this is I think it's such a main person, such a quandary to try and answer that question. I think it goes to the very heart of what we are and what we're about as a species. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm not... Well, one of the reasons... I suppose one of the... Oh, sorry, no, go, go, go ahead, Galen. One of the reasons... I think... ...to order the world to uh, try and make safe what is rather terrifying yeah. and to try and possess it. And, I mean, I suppose when people first started making cave art, it's when they first started seeing themselves as sort of from nature or, you know, as as a defined group. And um, I don't know, it's where um, perhaps the, the first drawing strikes home because you imagine um, people in the long, dark evenings in, in, you know, for whatever reason they made the, the cave art, it would certainly be something to talk about, to um, define yourself yeah. with, to, to, you know, just like people go to galleries today. Um, you know, to to be fascinated by and to to reinterpret and interpret. Yeah, it is about. Yes, there's always going to be so many different ways to look at it, isn't there? Mm. Have you? Um, uh, Presumably, some artists have taken the whole taking psychedelic substances to make their to to (laughs) to imbue their art with uh, new ideas as well. (laughs) Not that I'm suggesting that you do that, obviously. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely not. Well, um I think yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We could go on for ages, but I think we're going to um bring it to a close now. We have been talking for about an hour and um we have evenings to enjoy all of us, don't we? So, <laughs> thank you so much um Andy and Ghislaine for joining me tonight. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I think thank we you. can th- Thank you. So thank you very much to my guests, Ghislaine Howard and Andy Needham. Um, I think we agree that these books are very good together to give a more rounded view of upper Paleolithic life, but also to use as the basis of a philosophical discussion about what is art, particularly with children, of course. But I think even as adults, these books deserve um, a read. Over the next few months, I'm going to be talking about the graphic novel Mesolith and Rosemary Sutcliffe's Warrior Scarlet, amongst other um, topics. So, But do give me um, some comments, some ideas of any books that you'd like me to cover and listen again soon.
This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.